0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls. If you haven't noticed, it's getting hot outside. Summer is here, and thankfully, so are vaccines. And if you're like me, you're eager to get back out into the world. But just because we're all hopefully returning to the world, it doesn't mean that we have to put down our books. As you may know, at the end of the year, we here at the ABA Journal publish an episode where we discuss our favorite books. Well, this seems like a good moment to do that with a summer reading list, so you can re-enter the world well-armed with a good read. So today, I'm going to share a few of my favorite recommendations for summer reading, and we're gonna tie it all up with a brief replay of a past episode with author David Gran, who wrote Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, you may have heard this is going to be made into a movie by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jesse Plemons. We're really looking forward to seeing that, And I think that you will enjoy this replay of our episode we did with him back in 2017. I'm also going to talk a little bit about what I've been reading. I'm fully vaccinated. I hope you guys are too. And I've started to take vacation and enter out back into the world. And while I've been doing it, I have been listening to a lot of audiobooks and doing some reading. So I thought I'd give you some recommendations. First off, if you feel like you want more context for the pandemic response and how, what failed, failed, then I really would suggest the newest book by Michael Lewis. You may remember him from Moneyball. He also wrote a couple different books about the economic collapse in the 2008 time period. And he's just released a book called The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. Not all of you are going to be in the mood to listen to or read more about the pandemic. And I've got you covered there too. I downloaded an audiobook that I've really been enjoying by Carol Burnett. Yes, the comedian and TV star Carol Burnett. It's called In Such Good Company, 11 Years of Laughter, Mayhem, and Fun in the Sandbox. Obviously you can get this in print, but I had to go for the audiobook. I wanted to hear her tell her story uh, for myself. If you are a history buff, I have a couple books for you on this. One is a little bit unusual. It's called A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum by Emma Southen. And in it, she takes a look back at ancient Rome, what they considered to be murder or homicide, and how they dealt with it. Now, that sounds grim. It's actually very clever and uh, often funny in parts and, of course, heart-rending in others. And I really enjoyed it. So I I would recommend that one. I also have been going through a World War II kick. And I know there are plenty of people out there who also enjoy these books. So I'll just mention some that I've enjoyed. Ian Toll, T-O-L-L, has written a trilogy about the battle in the Pacific, specifically naval battles. And the trilogy here is Pacific Crucible, The Conquering Tide, and Twilight of the Gods. And as always, I will kick in a recommendation for Anthony Beaver, a wonderful historian. I spent 2020 listening to 36 or so hours of his book, The Second World War, and I also have uh, consumed in the past six months his D-Day, The Battle for Normandy. And I'll round out my last history recommendation with The Romanovs, 1613 to 1918, by Simon Sebag Montefiore. Now, this one is a real doorstopper of a book, but it is absolutely fascinating. If you are interested in Russian history at all, I really do recommend it. He tells it in a very fascinating and compelling way. I did have to take some breaks during this book because there are some extremely grim parts, but it really is a page turner. And then if you're just looking for a lighter read, something you can throw in your beach bag and take with you on your own vacation. I have been enjoying Jenny Colgan's books. They are not terribly intellectual, but they are feel nice on the brain. And I have read the Kieran Fief series by her in the last six months. Also, Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman. You may remember this as a Sandra Bullock, Nicole Kidman movie way back in the, I want to say 2000s. And she has written this series over a period of several decades, and a new book in this series is coming out soon, so I thought I'd go back to the beginning and read Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman. All right, well, thank you for joining us for this slightly different episode of the Modern Law Library. Please enjoy this 2017 conversation with David Graham, author of Killers of the Flower Moon. And if you're out there traveling, please stay safe And have a great time reading. The Osage tribe was forced from the ancestral lands by the U.S. government. But through shrewd and careful bargaining, they were able to retain the mineral rights to their new home in Osage County, Oklahoma. It turned out to be one of the largest oil fields in the world. But instead of ensuring the prosperity and safety of the tribe, the wealth of the Osage led them to be targeted for what was later known as the Reign of Terror. Welcome. My name is Lee Rawls, and this is the Modern Law Library. I'm here today with David Grant, the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. David, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Now, David, can you tell me what brought you to this story? This is not anything I know that I was taught in school. How did you find out about these multiple murders of Osage tribe members in the 19-teens through the 1930s.
1: So, yes, I first heard about the story back in 2011 from a historian, and I was pretty shocked that I had never heard of this case. I did not know that the Osage were among the wealthiest people in the world. I did not know that they had been serially murdered, and I did not know that the investigation would become one of the FBI's first major homicide cases so it was at that time I headed out to the Osage Nation in northeast Oklahoma, and I made a visit to their museum. And when I was there, um, they had this enormous panoramic photograph on the wall. It was taken in 1924. It shows members of the Osage Nation gathered with white settlers. It looks like a very innocent pageant. But I noticed that a panel from the photograph was missing. And I asked the museum director why, you know, what had happened to it. And she said it had contained a figure so frightening that she decided to remove it. And she then pointed to that missing panel and she said the devil was standing right there. And the book really grew out of trying to understand who that figure was and the anguishing history it embodied. Um, The museum director went down into the basement at one point and got a image of the missing panel. And it showed a, a man appearing out very creepily from the edge of the photo And it turned out he was one of the masterminds of many of the killings of the Osage for their oil money back during the early part of the 20th century.
0: Now, to orient our readers, I think that, you know, we do sometimes hear about the Trail of Tears, which was, you know, the Cherokee Nation. The Osage had a slightly different journey, and many of their leaders were able to very cannily bargain with the U.S. government. Now, they were... Facing really terrible odds, the government pretty much always wins, but people like James Bighart, John Palmer were able to do some things for the tribe so that they should not have been in such desperate straits. Can you talk a little bit about um, what made the Osage Nation's experience a little bit different than some of the other tribes in Oklahoma?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the Osage had once dominated the central part of the country, all the way from Kansas and Missouri to the edge of the Rockies. In the early 1800s, Thomas Jefferson, then president, uh, referred to them as the great nation. He actually met with the delegation of Osage chiefs in 1804 at the White House and assured them that the country would treat them only as friends.
0: Although he referred to them as my children, and this seems yes. to be very creepy and to kind of yes. pr- very yes. paternalistic the, and yes. fore- foretelling of how the U.S. government would uh, look at these people, these grown adults.
1: Exactly. It showed the sense of paternalism that often concealed the real hand of coercion, as the Osage would quickly learn, um, as uh, within just a few years, he began to push them off their land. Within a few decades, they were forced to cede more than 100 million acres of their ancestral land. They were confined eventually to a reservation in Kansas um, and then in the 1860s were under siege once more. And it was then that an osage chief when they were searching for a new homeland stood up and said they should move to this land uh, that was then in indian territory would later become oklahoma because the land was hilly and rocky and infertile and he said the white man uh, would finally leave us alone so my people should move there and so they did and they actually purchased their land they had a deed to this land it was about the size of delaware uh, most whites considered this area worthless at the time and they resettled there. There was only about 2,000 of them left. Uh, The forced migrations um, and diseases from uh, white men's diseases, uh, massacres had taken a tremendous toll on them. Um, And they resettled there on the seemingly forsaken land. And then lo and behold, it turned out to be sitting upon these enormous deposits of oil. And they began to become, within a few years, the wealthiest people per capita in the world. In 1923, that year alone, that's 2000 or so Osage, received collectively what would be worth today more than $400 million. And they lived in mansions and they had servants, many of whom were white. Um, it was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. And this provoked because of prejudice, because of envy, because of scapegoating, um, because their lies belied long-standing stereotypes of Native Americans all sorts of strange reactions, paternalistic reactions, racist reactions towards the Osage because of their money. And um, the white government went so far as to appoint guardians, white guardians, to help manage the Osage wealth. And it gets back to that same comment you said about Thomas Jefferson. It was somehow assumed that the Osage couldn't handle their money, which was outrageous. And this really was a racist system. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. If you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent and given a white guardian. So you could be a great chief who led a nation and suddenly have someone telling you where you can buy a car or what kind of toothpaste. A chief at that time literally set up and said, we are not children, we are men, um, and this is an injustice. And this system also led to a criminal enterprise where many guardians ended up stealing and swindling millions of dollars.
0: Now, that leads us into the character who dominates the beginning of the book. And this is a woman named Molly Burkhart, who in her own right seems like a very, a very strong woman, you know, resourceful. But as the story opens, members of her family are dying. Can you tell me how Molly became sort of the center of this scandal in the center of your book?
1: Sure. I mean, Molly is a remarkable woman. In many ways, she straddles not only two centuries, but two civilizations. She was born in the 1880s in a lodge speaking Osage, practicing Osage traditions. Um, As a young girl, she's then forced to be uprooted by the federal government, forced to go to a Catholic boarding school where her blanket is removed from her back. She can no longer speak Osage. Um, She's suddenly taught a bewildering uh, new theology of the world. And then within a few decades, because of the money, she's living in a mansion. Uh, She's married to a white settler from Texas. She has servants. And then one day in May of 1921, her older sister, Anna Brown, who lived nearby, disappeared. Molly looked everywhere for her. Her body was later found, about a week later, in a ravine. She had been shot in the back of the head. And it was the first sign that Molly's family was being targeted by a mysterious criminal conspiracy. Not long after that, Molly's mother grows mysteriously sick and within two weeks stops breathing, and evidence would later suggest that she had been poisoned. Not long after that, Molly had another sister named Rita Smith, and one night about three in the morning, Molly heard a loud explosion, and she went to her window, and she looked out in the direction of her sister's house where Rita lived uh, with Rita's husband and a white maid, and there was nothing there except for an orange ball rising into the sky. Somebody had planted a bomb underneath the house, killing Molly's sister and everybody else who was in the house at the time. And it wasn't just Molly's family that was being systematically targeted. One by one, the Osage with oil money were being targeted and mysteriously killed through shootings, poisoning, and even this bombing.
0: Now, Molly didn't take this just, you know, sitting down. She attempted to put out rewards for information. She attempted to hire private investigators, but was really receiving no help from the locals. How did the FBI become involved in this case?
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I think one of the things that's remarkable about Molly is that she crusades for justice at a time when, as a woman and as an Osage, her views are being discounted by the white authorities, and yet she perseveres, she issues rewards, she hires private detectives, all the while, a great peril to her own life. This is basically putting a bullseye on her, and yet she doesn't stop crusading for justice. And in 1923, there was so much corruption and so much neglect of these cases, it was easy to tilt the scales of justice for the powerful. The justice system in much of the country, and particularly in this area, was rotten to the core. Um, You could buy local law enforcement. There was suspicions that local law enforcement was conspiring in the crimes. And because of great prejudice, these cases were neglected. And so the bodies just continued to pile up. And by 1923, Molly uh, and other members of the tribe issued a tribal resolution asking and demanding for the federal authorities to send in investigators. By then, there had been officially more than two dozen murders of the Osage. And there were several other murders that a few people had tried to catch the close were themselves killed, including a lawyer who was thrown off a speeding train. And so it was then after that tribal resolution that the case wound up, well, was then a very obscure branch of the Justice Department. It was known as the Bureau Investigation. Of course, we would later come to know it, and it would later be renamed the FBI. And that's how the case finally wound up with the Bureau. And the Bureau, you need to understand back then, was a pretty ragtag organization. It just had a smattering of agents and field offices. And they did not have jurisdiction over many crimes. That would change in the 1930s. And they really didn't handle murder cases for the most part but they had a jurisdiction over American Indian Reservation. So this murder case fell to them, and it became one of the FBI's first major homicide cases and one of the first major homicide cases of its new ambitious secretive director, J. Edgar Hoover.
0: I guess I didn't fully appreciate until reading your book how young J. Edgar Hoover was when he took over control of the FBI. You have a picture of him in your book. He is 29. He looks... You know, like he's just gone through puberty. I mean, he he really does appear very young, but he already held a lot of power. And he sent a man who was a former Texas Ranger, Tom White, to investigate. And Tom White's search is sort of the core middle part of your book. And at this point in time, as he's coming into town, he's told Molly is ill and you know, doctors are attending to her, but she's not getting better. What is he doing to try and figure out what's gone on in this community?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the Bureau first received the case in 1923 and badly bungled it. For two years, they failed to make any arrests. Not only that, they got a outlaw, a guy named Blackie, out of jail. They hoped to use him as an informant. Said he slipped away and robbed the bank and killed the police officer. And so J. Edgar Hoover, who was 29, as you said at the time, he didn't have the jowls. He didn't look like a bulldog. He was the new director in 1924, is afraid of a scandal. And it's hard to believe that, you know, the greatest, kind of most powerful bureaucrat in the history of this country was insecure about his position and power then, but he was. And it was in 1925 where he summoned this man, Tom White, an old frontier lawman from Texas, who in many ways is like Molly. He straddled two centuries. He was born in a log cabin at a time when justice was often meted out by the barrel of a gun. By the 1920s, he's wearing a suit and a fedora. He's trying to learn how to use fingerprinting and handwriting analysis, which becomes an important part of the case. He has to file paperwork, which he can't stand. And Hoover summons him uh, to take over the case, um, essentially hoping to protect his own job. And White was a very experienced frontier lawman, and he puts together an undercover team. Some of the agents he recruits pose as cattlemen, another poses as an insurance salesman and actually sells real policies. And perhaps most interestingly, he recruited to the team an American Indian agent. And there are no statistics at the time, but I think it's fair to say that he was the only American Indian agent in Hoover's Bureau at the time. And they go in undercover and they do... In many ways, it's less like a criminal investigation than an espionage case. There are moles, uh, there are double agents, there's fears of a triple agent, the reports are leaked, they are followed. It is impossible to know who to trust. Um, They begin to get a sense that there are many conspirators, but ultimately what they do is follow the money.
0: Now, I don't want to ruin the book and the pacing for any of our listeners who want to pick up Killers of the Flower Moon. So I don't want to reveal too much of what was eventually discovered. But what they do know is that some of the people involved, some of the white people involved, had actually married into the Osage families with the explicit purpose or you know, later developed the purpose of defrauding them, killing them, and inheriting the head rights and taking the money. When you go today and are speaking to people from the Osage Nation, that's such a complicated family history to have because, you know, these couples had children and the children have to reckon with one side of their family had plotted to kill the other, or these deaths were so mysterious You know, oh, did he just drink himself to death? Did someone poison his whiskey? Was that an accidental shooting? I mean, all of these uncertainties must weigh on the people of the Osage Nation. What did you discover when you went to report the story?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, these were, as you said, deeply intimate crimes. And it had to do with the complicated way in which you could get the oil money. And so it involved marrying into families. It involved betraying the very people you pretended to love. The victims discovered in many cases that the people who they thought loved them had been calculating for years, plotting to kill them. You had perpetrators and victims living in these same houses, in these houses of secrets. I tracked down a Molly Burkhardt's granddaughter, a lovely woman named Margie, and she told me, the effects it had on her family, what it was like to grow up without cousins and aunts, what it was like for her father to know that he had lived in such a house. She had showed me a picture, a photograph, that probably was Molly's, and it showed the two children in the house, and yet it showed the father uh, ripped out of the picture. And I just thought that picture told you so much pain Uh, This picture that should have been an ordinary family was so anguishing that someone had ripped out a member of the family who was a perpetrator. And when you speak to so many of the Osage today who have lived with these doubts or have lived with the consequences of losing relatives, losing money and their fortunes that were swindled from them, you get a real sense of how this is living history and how it still reverberates to this day.
0: You say that back in the 1920s, you know, the tribe had dwindled to some 2,000, 3,000 people. How are the Osage doing today? What are the numbers, and do people still live in the area?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, because I think it's a, a really important to underscore how resilient the Osage are. And um, they are a very vibrant nation uh, to this day. Um, in the area of Osage County, where the old reservation was, they have about 4,000 Osage living there, and altogether they have about 20,000 members of their nation. Um, they have their own democratic institutions, and so those 20,000 vote and participate. They have their own court system. Um, they've taken many measures to protect themselves. They have found other sources and revenues and income, including casinos, that help with education and health benefits. And as one Osage lawyer told me, she said, we were victims of these crimes, but we do not live as victims. And I think that's a very important point to convey.
0: Well, David, what do you think your next project will be? And do you have any other books that you think that our listeners would also like to check out aside from Killers of the Flower Moon?
1: Sure. So my first book was called uh, The Lost City of Z, and that just came out as a movie uh, recently as well. Um, and that's about a, it's a very different, but it's about a British explorer, kind of the last of the terrestrial explorers who mapped the Amazon and began to believe there was an ancient civilization there and set out with his son in 1925 to find it and disappeared. And it's a lot about the question of if there was an ancient civilization in the Amazon it would really transform our understanding of what the Americas looked like before Columbus um, it also deals with a lot of racial prejudice because of attitudes and assumptions about indigenous societies in the Amazon. The listeners may be interested in that. Um, and I'm working on a, I'm a writer at The New Yorker, and I'm working on a magazine story on something a little bit lighter at the moment, but I'm also looking for a new book idea. So if anybody has one, feel free to reach out to me. You can contact me through my website at davidgrand.com or on Twitter at David Grand.
0: Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. And readers can pick up your book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. I believe in prints and ebook and audiobook, which is how I listen to it as well on, uh, on commute. So It's made for a great commute. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast service is. Thank you for joining us for this special flashback episode of the Modern Law Library. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that you and yours are safe this summer and having lots of time to read and recover, and that you'll join us next episode when we have a brand new discussion with new authors I'm excited for you to hear from. If you have a suggestion for books you'd like us to feature, please reach out to us at books at abajournal.com.